Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That is my favorite time of the week. The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, answers your questions, science and natural history related. What's your question, team? Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? Good morning. I bet you say that to all your guests, don't you? You know me. You know me. <laughs> but anyway, I hope you're having a very, very good week and looking no, forward I'm to good. the weekend. I, I found this really <laughs> weird fossil, right? Because I went to, yeah. I was on holiday for a couple of days. I, I decided I needed a holiday for, uh, for the reason that I hadn't had one for over a year. And after 18 months of COVID, um, working at the hospital, etc., I really need a break. So I, I had a holiday for two days and I went to the Jurassic Coast Lyme Regis down on the south coast of England this extraordinary place where on the beach there are huge stones with fossils a foot across of ammonites and things like that it's it's the sort of geeks charm dream place you know it's the kind of place I, I, I have kind of dreams about and I always wanted to go back there so I've been there a few times I took my children and so they were sort of scurrying around looking at the ammonites and so on. And I found this weird, innocuous-looking rock jammed down between two rocks. And mm-hmm. no one can identify what this is for me. And so maybe if there are some geologists familiar with the sort of geology at Lyme Regis, which is it's just, you know, 160-million-year-old rocks-ish uh, thereabouts, mm. there, there is this bizarre thing. It's about cricket ball-sized. It's hard. Oh. Obviously, it's a lump of rock, but it's almost as though it's lots of little balls which are all stuck together. It looks like a whelk egg case that's been fossilised, but the little balls are much bigger than you get in a whelk egg case. They're each about 10 millimetres across, these little spherules, these round balls that are almost concreted all together in this blob. And I would love to know what this is because I can't find any pictures of exactly what this is. So anybody listening who knows what this might be, it looks like the fossilised equivalent of a bloated whelk egg case. I would be delighted with the diagnosis, please. So do let me know, anyone if who can help me out. any paleontologists listening and can help Chris out, you can help Chris out this time, you can do so. Call us. Exactly. I've also put a picture online, still. Lester. And so if people on, on your website? Yeah, yeah. If you go to the Naked Scientist website and go to our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum, there is a section on there that says geology. And if you click in there, I've put the topic, what is this lumpy rock? And a really big picture. So people can, can have a look at it with a ruler so they can actually get a sense of the scale. So if anyone would like to check that out and tell me, please do help because I've got, I've got two, two children who are intrigued and curious and they, they will not let me rest until I give them the answer. Well, let's go to the voice note line now. Uh, this is a message from Zuki. You can also call in, of course, 21 Good morning, Lester. This is Zuki. I've got a question about allergic reactions. Um, recently, I had an allergic reaction to a meal that I've ordered on numerous occasions from the same restaurant. Uh, my face swelled up. Um, my glands swelled up. I had itchy bumps all over my body. Um, when I went back to the restaurant, they told me that um, the, the, the type of ribs I'd ordered on this occasion were different from what I normally ordered. Um, that it was a different part of the animal. 
So my question is, is it possible to be allergic to a part of an animal that you are not normally allergic to? Thank you. Thanks so much, Zuki. Chris? Uh, well, first of all, I feel sorry for you uh, that your meal was spoiled. And when we have food allergies and things like that, it, it makes dining out a really frightening experience for some people because they're worried that this sort of thing can happen. Fortunately, it's relatively rare. Now, it's very difficult to unpick exactly what's gone on here because when you don't prepare food yourself, you don't actually know what pot it was cooked in, what they added to it, what ingredients were used etc etc because there's so many moving parts in a busy kitchen where they're churning out food and, and meals at a ferocious rate then the spoon that was in one particular thing it may well have gone between two sets of sauces or something and so the number of possibilities here is enormous it's unlikely that just one bit of an animal is going to produce this allergic reaction and another bit isn't because you know we're all one big sort of bag of juices and it's a bit like saying I'm allergic to cheese but if I eat a bit off one end of the cheese I'll be fine it's the other end that I'm not mm. fine with it's it's very unlikely you can never say never in medicine but it's very unlikely that that is the case unless there's some particular thing that's very concentrated in one particular meat that's done that I think it's much more likely it'll be something I mean she's talking about spare ribs or or something it's very likely that something in the dressing the sauce or the marinade has crept in which she is exquisitely sensitive to and which would not normally be there and perhaps the ingredient was slightly different perhaps the supplier was slightly different and had an additional thing in there and on this occasion that that mm. ingredient is what's tripped it up I'd, I'd be very surprised if it's the bit of the animal to be honest with you um, just on a bit of the animal, someone has replied to your question. They're, they're asking, could it be fossilized stomach contents that, that, that you found in, well, in the fossil pot? One other person said, is this a fossilized deer poo? Because you know what deer and, sh and sheep poo looks like? I saw the picture. Like? I didn't want to, I didn't yeah. want to be too um, cheeky. The, I saw it and it looked very much like a, like a, like a ball of poo. Well, the, the problem is that the stratigraphy, in other words, the timeline from surface down to the depths where this relates to, would be well before the emergence of big mammals like deer, which didn't come along until well after the dinosaurs had exited. This is well before all that. So this probably isn't anything mammalian that made this, but it, it could be a, a pile of poo. I don't know, but it would be a big animal that, that made something like that. So I'm thinking more along the lines of some kind of egg case or egg deposit, but um, I am, I'm not a paleontologist, so that's why we need a few, a few experts with the right eye. It may, on the other hand, I mean, one always has to be really careful with this kind of thing, that this is not of animal origin at all. This could be completely geological, and you do get various geological processes that produce nodules and round sort of spherical structures. And in the same way that our, our human brains will, if we look hard enough at a cloud, reveal a face to us, we end up with the picture being presented to us as seeing what we want to see. So it's always important mm. to step back and be unbiased and say, well, you know, this could be this process, this process could be completely natural, but it could be animal in origin. And, um, and it's really fascinating. It certainly baffled the Twitter sphere because normally you put these sorts of things on Twitter and, and you get the answer from a bright bunch on there very quickly and it's gone very, very mm. quiet. So I think, I think people, well, stony silence, I suppose you could say, boom, boom, um, have a, you know, it's, it's got everyone a bit confused. <laughs> Dr. Susan is asking Dr. Chris. Chris, the biggest puzzle to me are dreams. I dreamed about places I have never been to and people I have never known. What is the answer? In fact, I, I dreamt this. I had a, I think it was probably a six-hour dream this week. 
uh, sometime this Ooh. week where in my dream, I dreamt I was watching a movie. I, I dreamt about a movie that in my dream I had seen before. A movie I'd seen before. When I woke up, I tried to recall what was that movie again, and I came to the realization I made up a movie in my brain, in my head, while I was sleeping. Yeah, and when we go to sleep, no one knows actually why we dream, but it it seems to be very important for our psyche. If people don't dream, then they don't get restful sleep. And it's also very important for memory consolidation. We've done various experiments on people where if you allow people to sleep and have a complete sleep cycle, where actually that includes phases of dreaming and non-dreaming, they get much better consolidation and recall later of what you've taught them than if you prevent them from sleeping or prevent them from getting a proper night's, night's rest. So it seems to be very important to us, but it's equally very important to the animal world as well because animals that we study also appear to dream. They show the same patterns of dream activity and anyone who's got a dog or a cat, for example, will, will know that sometimes the, the dog will lay in its basket doing little woofs or barks or, or shaking its paws. It's clearly dreaming because you can see it's asleep and it's stalking imaginary prey or something like that. But when we go to sleep and dream you're basically disconnecting various parts of the brain from the way they're normally connected together and a different pattern of brain activity and a different pattern of connectivity between brain areas takes over when we go into these phases of dream sleep and you activate those brain regions in much the same way as they're activated when we're awake and so basically they are producing experiences but they're producing random experiences uncontrolled and uncoordinated by the normal flow of information through the brain and in that way you can take knowledge background information and other experiences and mesh them together in new ways the other thing to bear in mind is that we we obviously know what we know and we know what we've done before and what we're familiar with unless you suffer some kind of deja vu sort of phenomenon and for that reason the same center that gives you or the same brain connections that give you that sense of what I know and what I don't know well if that gets the switch thrown then it can attach significance and it can attach familiarity even to unfamiliar things and that's basically what deja vu is when you have a deja vu experience you think I'm sure you know I know all this I'm sure I've had this experience before but it's because the system in the brain that's saying I know about this is tripping over and turning on when it shouldn't and the same can happen when you when you dream so you do feel very close and familiar to your dreams because they're basically the same brain structures that could that would normally decode and present to your consciousness these experiences when you're awake are doing that but Mm. in a much less constrained looser way when you're uh, asleep and we don't know why we do this why we want to do this but we know it's very important because if you don't do this you don't feel half as happy Mm. thanks so much uh gazella's called in from Durbanville. Good morning, how are you? Good morning, I'm fine. I have a question for the naked scientist, hopefully not naked today, but something has been bugging me since I was a teenager and I cannot get my mind around it. What was there before the Big Bang? In other words, there can't be nothing. What is nothing? I mean, we all know the planets and how it all started and, and, and the planets and the suns and what have you, but what was there before? I mean, there couldn't have been what is nothing? What is nothing? <laughs> it really bugs me. Gazella, <laughs> thanks so much for that, Chris. I remember being small and trying to imagine the universe going on forever, and I just couldn't imagine the sky 
going outwards and outwards and outwards and then space going. It, it used to make me feel weird and send shivers down my spine. Similarly, it's impossible for us as humans that have evolved to live on a three-dimensional planet that we do constrained by time and space and, and the various rules of physics and gravity that confine our lives here. It's very hard to imagine, well, how can nothing have existed what we tend to argue is that the universe began, this universe began with the Big Bang about 13.8 billion years ago. The universe is everything, and therefore the universe got created 13.8 billion years ago, and it came from this infinitesimally small but very energetic thing, which was the Big Bang. And everything's been growing since then. But when you then say, well, hang on a minute, if it's growing, it's growing into something, isn't it? So is it inside something? And it's impossible to not see the universe as a box inside a box. And then another box around that box. And it boggles your mind because we have not evolved a brain that can cope with that because we don't live in a world where that's normally presented to us. And it takes a very deep thinker and a very special brain to be able to comprehend this kind of thing. And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know what predated the Big Bang. We cannot tell. It was impossible to go there. And it's very hard to unpick information that tells us anything about that era or that epoch. Because, mm. of course, if nothing existed, it leaves behind no footprints. We have got back pretty close to the Big Bang by looking back in space. And you can do this because there are various footprints and some people say echoes of the Big Bang written into the fabric of what's bombarding us from space in, in terms of things like the cosmic background, uh, microwave background. And the various signals that are in there can enable us to predict some of the early phases of the Big Bang and get back quite close to the beginning, but we can't go back beyond a certain point because there was nothing. And so that's where we are into the realms of theory and that's where the theoreticians come in and they come up with ideas and proposals and experiments that we could do to test them and then the physicists come in and make those experiments happen and push back the frontiers of knowledge, but it's a slow process. Thanks so much. Uh, Andre in Darling, how are you doing? I'm fine, Esther. Thank you. What's your question? Um, my question is uh, related to the lady who phoned in regarding the allergic reaction. My question is in wine, the most common uh, allergic, allergic reaction that people get is a headache. Um, well, apart from having too much alcohol, um, sometimes people have like one or two glasses of wine and they will have a headache in the morning. And uh, they, a lot of people attribute it to the, the sulfur in the wine, mm. but the sulfur is really related. So my question is, is it not the histamines that you find in all organic matter, which is obviously in grapes and in grape juice, eventually in wine as well, that actually uh, causes the allergic reaction, which um, in most cases is a headache, but also, um, you know, other, other symptoms? Thanks so much, Andre. Chris, I have plenty of friends who are un un unfortunately um, allergic to, to sparkling wine, champagne, brut, cava, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's very unfortunate for them, but, but it's quite often, I find, in my particular circle of, of people actually being allergic to wine, but uh, they, 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 they forge forward. Well, wine is a very complex bag of chemicals. And uh, the, the chemistry is more complicated than just the things that went into the wine. Because when you make wine, you, you start with grape juice, uh, assuming you, you're making that sort of wine. And 
you then put this into a fermentation process with microorganisms. And so that means the chemicals that were in the wine, to start, the grape juice to start with, are then modified. They react together. They go through the metabolic pathways in the microorganisms. That produces another slew of chemicals, which then themselves all react and change and evolve and change into new chemicals. And that's actually part of the art of good winemaking, that you, you have this complex chemistry that doesn't stop. It will continue to evolve in the bottle over time. And that's why some y- wines are best drunk young, some wines have a really good bottle age, some only come into their own after years in, in the bottle. And it's that evolving chemistry. So it's much more complicated than just there is, there's something in the, in the grapes that causes it, although that can happen in some people. Mm. It's rare, but it can happen. But a headache in response to wine is often not an allergic reaction. There are, because of all these complex chemicals in the wine, there are possible side reactions that happen in a person. When you drink or put any food into your body, the first thing it does is visit the microbes that are in your gut and they get rid of quite a few toxins and things like that. But then the chemicals are absorbed into the bloodstream and they first go to your liver and the liver has the first dibs into metabolising what's in the wine and then the stuff flows around the rest of your body. And in some people, they have very, very good liver systems that are excellent at degrading a range of different nasty things in the food we eat. And if the liver wasn't doing that, you'd be really ill really quickly because it would throw your biochemistry way off. In some people, though, they're not so good at degrading all the chemicals that are in there. And as a result, the levels of certain chemicals build up in the blood to higher levels in some individuals than other individuals and if they build up in the blood to higher levels they can then go into your tissues and in the tissues many of these chemicals can be pro-inflammatory and one of the best ones that's good at making you inflamed is the breakdown product of ethanol when you metabolize ethanol you turn it into a chemical called acetaldehyde and acetaldehyde is pretty similar chemically to formalin that we fix dead bodies with and and so you're basically fixing your body including fixing your brain and as a result this causes tissue damage it causes inflammation and it's the inflammation that causes hangover symptoms of achiness lethargy muzzy mindedness and a headache and that's why Mm. actually anti-inflammatories often taken before you get the really bad headache. So some people will, if, they, if they've had a bit of a, and they know they've overdone it a bit, they may well pop a few pills, a couple of paracetamol or an aspirin or two, not on an empty stomach, of course, before they nod off, because that way the inflammation is limited and they won't have such a bad headache in the morning. Trevor, before I get you in Cork Bay, and in, something, in South Africa we have something that's known as uh, the Hrun Ambulance, the Green Ambulance. It's a drink, a cream soda drink. It's green, it's sweet, it, it's, it's fizzy, and, and I swear it has, it has helped me in the past, Chris. Well, we actually did a piece <laughs> on The Naked Scientist about two or three years ago where we tested out a recipe generated by researchers in India for the best hangover cure. And what they did was to test a whole raft of different fruit juices because some fruit juices contain various amounts of antioxidants. And they came up with, based on their biochemical knowledge of what was in the fruit juices, what should be the best way to mitigate against a hangover by causing an anti-inflammatory but also competing with the metabolic pathways that make the bad stuff like acetaldehyde and we tested it it was a very unscientific experiment because we basically got a biochemist at cambridge university who also likes a lot of wine and he Mm. turned up after a boozy party 
uh, his statement was, I don't feel fresh. And we tested out some of these things on him and he said they tasted nice, but they didn't really make the hangover much better. But there was this paper mm. that these uh, scientists in India published to uh, put forward at least one recipe. You can find that on the Naked Scientist website. Actually. I'll tell you what, I'll tweet it after the programme. Here's the recipe. Try this one. And then perhaps <laughs> people can let us know next week if it's any good or not. It means I'm going to have to do some science tonight. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Could have some synthetic biology. <laughs> Trevor in Corkway, thanks so much for holding on. How are you? Yeah, good. Uh, good morning to you. I'm glad that lady asked you about the universe and the, and the Big Bang because that's also bothered me. Uh, and there's still another piece that bothers me. But anyway, my question for today, and it actually sounds like a stupid question. If I was to shoot off a very powerful light at the speed of light today, it will arrive somewhere, let's say, in four, four light years' time somewhere. If they were to then backtrack that light, so therefore it's arriving there in the future, if they were to then receive that light and backtrack, they would be looking into the past. So why can't we look into the past? Well, e- effectively, Trevor, we can, because when we look at the light arriving here on Earth, and by light I mean electromagnetic radiation, and this means visible light we can see, but also light waves we can't, including radio waves and microwaves and x-rays and gamma rays. We're being assailed with this kind of radiation from space all the time, and we can measure it, and we can look at where it's come from, and we can therefore see into the past because space being as vast as it is, there are some light sources which have been shining towards us for billions of years. And one of the things that happens to that light as it travels across the universe is because the universe has got bigger, it has expanded, the universe is continuously growing, the light that's traversing the universe stretches out almost. It's it's as though someone took a spring and stretched it. And so the frequency of which the light is um, vibrating is made greater uh, you know wider the wavelength stretches and this is called redshifting and because there are certain chemicals that emit very specific frequencies of light we know what those frequencies are and so if we look in light for those particular frequencies but which are slightly off we know basically how far back in time that light wave must have been traveling across the universe because the, say, signature corresponding to hydrogen atoms is a bit offset from where it should be. That's the redshift. And so that gives us a time clock for how long and how much expansion has happened since that light wave left. And so people are able to probe back in time to the early phases of the universe in precisely this way. And I mentioned earlier the cosmic microwave background radiation, the CMBR, And this is also dubbed echoes of the Big Bang. When the universe was very small and much younger, it was very hot and producing enormous amounts of radiation at a very high frequency. And as the universe has grown and expanded, those light ray waves have stretched out. And so now they have gone from being what were very high frequency to a lower frequency microwave. And we can still see that light, but it's now much more stretched out. So effectively, we are seeing into the past when we detect light that's coming to us from out in space from years ago. Um, let's go to the voice load line now. Uh, I think it's uh, Uleta who's been listening to us via our streaming services. Good morning, Uleta. Let's listen to your voice notes. Morning, Lester and Dr. Chris. My name is Uleta and I live in Norway. My question is regarding 
my, how I feel or the effect that driving down in a long tunnel, which goes under a fjord normally, driving downhill, it feels as if my head wants to explode. Why is that? Also, in Norway, they have very impressive bridges, very high bridges, and most of them are swing bridges. So you have these very high pillars going upwards. And when I'm driving over a bridge, I feel as if I'm going to fall, as if I'm going to fall into off the bridge down into the water below. It's awful. It's really awful and it impacts on my lifestyle because mm. we have these tunnels and bridges all over. I, I never thought I'd enjoy a combination of a Cape Townian and Norwegian accent so much from Letta, <laughs> but Chris, your answer? Uh, Yulita, thank you very much and thanks for being our first person, I think, from Norway to get in touch with the programme. Welcome aboard. I think this is part of the way our visual system processes information flowing past us. We have something called an optokinetic reflex, which you can see this in people. When the scenery moves very quickly, the eyes pursue the moving scenery in order to try to keep your gaze steady. A really good place to see this is in in, uh, the train. If you watch the person sitting opposite you in the train, as a train pulls into and out of a station, you'll see their eyes flick backwards and forwards as they try to pursue the people on the platform and fix their gaze on the platform and people's eyes will go flick 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 and it's it's a reflex built into our nervous system so that we can maintain steady state vision so when we're looking at things despite the fact that we're moving or they're moving we can pursue objects and keep a a clear image being formed now when you're driving along through say a tunnel you've got lots of objects streaking past your vision in your periphery very fast at a regular rate and your eyes will try to pursue this but of course you've got two eyes pointing forwards it's happening on both sides of you so it will give you the sensation that you're falling or moving in some way and the visual system isn't just connected to eye movements it's also there there are nerve tracks that run down your spinal cord which are connected to your postural muscles so that you can balance your body as well And so it it can, in some people, create quite a disturbing sensation that you're falling or that you need to make corrections with your muscles in order not to move, not to fall over and to stand up straight. And I think the tunnel is doing that, and so are the bridge pillars that she's talking about. As you drive across these bridges with them fleeting past your peripheral vision, you are fooling your system into thinking you are falling or that you're moving in some bizarre way that it needs to correct for. And as a result, it can make you feel quite giddy and dizzy. And that's it for The Naked Scientist this week. Unfortunately, in order to get on air, you need to call on early in the half hour. We'll do this again next week. But Chris, we may have a bit of a surprise for you. We're in discussion with a school just to get uh, a few youngsters on the line to have kids ask you some questions next week. And we're hoping to confirm that early next week we will be in touch. Dr. Chris Smith, The Naked Scientist. I'm sure you can. Also, some suggestions. Some people saying it looks like uh, your fossil looks like a truffle. <laughs> Other people saying it looks it's a rock to them. But hopefully, we've tweeted that that picture. Retweeted um, your post. Hopefully, we'll uncover that mystery. Let's get an Dr. answer Chris before me. the end of the day. Excellent. He's back with us next week.